Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, it is back to school time. And as a result, we're giving the curriculum for our personal finance class of what we think should be taught in schools today. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you too. And for a lot of people, it's also back to school week. I know uh, a lot of kids are are at school in person. And uh, for us, it was a very exciting week. Actually, uh, last week was the first week that my daughter ever went to preschool, which meant we finally had some time to think in the house. So we were very excited at the prospect for having a few hours to ourselves. So Dan, you're telling me your productivity level has shot up like a rocket in the last week. Yeah, I'm, I'm at least operating at, let's call it 30% improvement from the week before. Very nice. Well, uh, as your business partner, I appreciate that. I appreciate it too. Well, yeah. So, and that really spurred us to to think about doing a back to school episode, which uh, is what we're going to do today. And I, I think this is a really fun idea. So, for our back to school episode, what we're going to do is talk about the six things that we think should be taught in financial literacy in personal finance in schools today. If we had to break it down into our curriculum, what do we think your kids should know? That's what we're going to do with our show today. Right. I feel like every time financial professionals talk or even everyday people talk, we encounter these things that we feel like should be taught in school just to prepare us for everyday life. And dealing with personal finance is one of those big things that we could be learning instead of learning you know, name some crazy thing they teach you. And Ross, you look like you're ready to name something. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I've I've remembered that since freshman year biology. That has not served me once as an actual human trying to live my life, but I do remember it. One day you're going to sound very impressive to a <laughs> microbiologist. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a high bar. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is what we think we would slot in for our financial literacy course if we were teaching it in a high school today. And we're going to start with a core principle, which is budgeting basics and savings. Yeah, Ross, when we were talking about ideas, this was the first one you kicked out, and I think it's a good one. So why don't you tee it up for the people and and how would we position budgeting and basics for the for the student? Well, so the first thing that that I think of is when you come up with a budget, and let's say you miss it uh, by a month or in a month or in whatever period of time that you're measuring, is understanding how to back out of that. And so the example that I use, if let, let's assume that you're living on or, or working with $1,000 a month, right? $1,000 is what you have. And in one month, you go over by 100 bucks. You spend $1,100. To back out of that mistake next month means we can't go back to spending $1,000, 
right? We have to actually spend 900. So where last month we were living on 1100, now we've got to drop to 900, which on a percentage basis is actually a meaningful drop, right? We're, we're trying to use pretty friendly round numbers here. But that's where I think people get really into trouble is let's assume that $1,000 was a comfortable budget. But once you blow it once, you actually have to adjust down to dig back out. And again, that may for, for folks that are listening to this as a personal finance podcast listener, that might be like a duh response when you hear that. But I really think that people don't recognize that sticking with your budget once it's been blown for a month actually means a deeper cut than what you were really even thinking about, right? The 1100 is no, that that doesn't work. We have to get down by 200 bucks the next month from what we just spent just to dig out of that. Uh, and so I think budgeting basics and the flip side of that, of course, is savings and starting to build a nest egg and an emergency fund so that when you have a month where you're going to go over by your 100 bucks, that there's something there to absorb it versus talking about credit, which we're going to get into in just a little bit. I like this lesson a lot because there are really two components to it. There's the short-term planning. What is my budget? What do I think I'm going to spend this month and next month? And then the long-term planning as well, because invariably something's going to come up that's going to blow your budget. You can't plan for everything. So how do you think big picture and prepare yourself for that instead of just being taken unexpectedly and digging yourself a hole? It's it's a huge thing that, that uh, really both... Children and adults need to learn, right? We, we talk to people all the time that still struggle with this in their adult daily lives. So the earlier we could get that sort of a message into people's heads and into their psychology, the better. Absolutely. So the number two thing that we feel should be taught in school or at least emphasized to a great degree is compounding. Compounding is like the eighth wonder of the world. It is. I've heard that many times and I forget who it's attributed to originally, but it's, it's true. I truly do believe that. Yeah. And, and the story that I feel like everyone has heard at some point to illustrate the power of compounding is the penny example. The magic penny. The magic penny. And to tee it up, the question is, would you rather have a penny and have it doubled every day for the rest of the month and wind up with the amount of money that comes at the end of that or have a million dollars today? Now, that seems like an easy choice. Ross, what are you feeling? A million dollars today, or would you rather have the magic penny that doubles every day for 30 days? So I already know the end of this example because uh, I love this example. I would clearly take the magic penny that's going to double every day for 30 days because I know that it ends up being way more valuable than the million dollars today. Here's my favorite part of this example. So, so let's fast forward. At the end of 30 days, the magic penny turns into over $5 million. That is by far the winning bet. But my favorite piece of this story is that if you dissect it a little further, it really tells you how powerful compound interest is. And that's at day 20. So you have this penny that doubles every day. We know it ends at $5 million plus dollars. At day 20, you only have over $5,000. So it sounds like you're getting ready to lose big time against the million dollars, but through that power of compounding, your money is earning money on the money it's earned before, and you skyrocket ahead. And I think the lesson here is looking long-term, being slow and steady and patient, and kind of trusting your money to work for you rather than looking for the short wins and, and the immediate payoff. 
The other example that, that's right in line with the Magic Penny that I really like is the wheat and chessboard problem. Uh, and so, I, again, I don't know if this is true, but I think it's a fun example. Uh, the guy that invents chess, supposedly, as the story goes, brings it to the king, and the king is thrilled, says, this is a wonderful game. You know, we, we want to reward you for your efforts. And so what he asks for is, I actually thought it was rice. I'm, I'm reading it right now on Wikipedia, and it was wheat. And he asked for a wheat grain and that it would double for each space on the chessboard. So on chess piece one, one grain of wheat, then two, then four, right? And the king, who apparently didn't have this compounding lesson, uh, goes, all right, well, that sure, of, of course I'm going to do that. Well, it turns out it's 64 squares on the chessboard, right? The magic penny we're only allowing to double 30 times. At 64 squares... The total number of grains gets to 18 quintillion grains of wheat. Just an astronomical number. Uh, and, of course, this works out very well for the guy that invents it and probably bankrupted the king and the kingdom in the process. right? But, but just the power of what a doubling can do and what that compounding starts to look like. And it's so difficult because in those early days of saving, to your point, Dan... Right, the first 20 days that the penny doubles, you're kind of bored with it. And that's what happens to people in those early days of investing is the first time you put, whether it's 500 bucks or 100 bucks or 1,000 bucks to work, right? Your returns feel so small that your savings rate is way more powerful, right? You can put another 1,000 bucks in next month and you've doubled your investment where even a 10% return wouldn't have done that much, right? It just doesn't feel that powerful. But getting kids to understand what that starts to look like when that compounding effect really takes effect, I think would be a magical lesson that we could be teaching the youth. And also inspires you to start early. For this to be powerful and to work to the extent that it can, you need to start like yesterday. A absolutely. Yeah, it really, um, when you think about how many periods of doubling you'd be, you'd be looking for in your lifetime, the more the better, right? And and uh, by having that math and understanding that, hopefully you could encourage people to get started as soon as possible. All right, so number three, the next thing that I think it would be important to teach is how a credit score works. There are some really big building block pieces on how your credit works that I think uh, are still commonly misunderstood. So let's talk about the two biggest components. Number one is your payment history. All right, we all know that if you've been late on paying a uh, piece of debt, whether it's 30, 60, 90 days late or more, that gets reported to credit bureaus. That is a big ding. You don't want that to happen. So making sure that at the very least, you're paying minimum payments on time and you're on top of it, that's good. But I think the piece that gets misunderstood is the utilization ratio, which is another almost equally important component. So when you apply for a credit card for the first time, they're going to give you a limit. Normally, it's going to be pretty low if you don't have an established credit history, but let's assume it's $2,500, right? Whatever the number is. So I think that that's the most misleading piece of information that you get when you're learning about credit, because they're kind of setting this threshold of, hey, don't go over this and you're okay. But the reality is that to keep your score in really good standing, you need to be at 30% of that limit or less. 
your utilization ratio, if you get up to 100% of your credit used, that's not good. That's going to really damage your score. So for kids to see, you know, $2,500 as their limit, what they should be thinking is that I don't ever want a balance higher than $833. That's critical. That's a huge difference, right? I mean, even a $1,000 balance on a $2,500 limit goes into a utilization ratio that doesn't really look that great. Now, some of the other things that go into your credit score, length of credit history, the mix of accounts, those are tougher to deal with when you're really young, right? And, and the, those kind of elements, um, and then also how often you're applying, right? How many hard inquiries you have on your credit report. Those are the major building blocks to your credit score. But that utilization rate in particular, I think is one that needs a lot more uh, knowledge out into the world. Even just understanding the upper and lower bounds of the credit score, it's like 300 to 850. Who picked those numbers? Yeah, who invented that scale? Yeah, that's ridiculous. So just knowing where you fall and when you see your credit score, knowing what that means and where that puts you, that's important. And then the other thing that I think is also misunderstood is the value of pulling your credit report so you might have a good score, but there are other things that live in that credit report that are worth seeing, uh, including like unpaid bills, in particular medical expenses that might make their way onto that report and making sure that they're accurate and there's nothing floating out in the world that you've forgotten about. Uh, when I was working at the bank, that's the single thing I saw the most. People having these claims on their reports that they had forgotten about years and years ago because maybe they missed a letter or they're contact information changed and they made a ping on their credit report for, you know, $20 hospital bill that they had forgotten about. All right. So Dan, related to credit, number four is talking about loans and how they're structured. Now, probably the first loan that a lot of people encounter might be a car loan, uh, I would expect before something like a house payment. Um, But let's just talk through how an amortization schedule works and why that's so important. Yeah. And this is really wonky because you know, if you're coming into the loan world, having never had one before, you just imagine that every payment you make is going to be the same. You're paying the same amount. So it's going to impact your loan in the same way. Well, that's not really true. So every payment you make on a loan is composed of two pieces, your principal payment and your interest payment. For your first payments, more of that money is going to cover your interest and only a small portion is going to cover your, your principal. So your loan balance is going to look high for the beginning years of your loan because most of that money is just going to pay your lender. As time goes on, the interest component becomes smaller and the principal component becomes higher. So it's almost like the reverse of the compounding discussion, right? So early on, your loan balance remains high, but then all of a sudden it starts decreasing more rapidly than it was early on. And that's important if you're relying on something like a home loan and trying to understand how your equity is going to build in that home. So when you take your loan, you're going to have your amortization schedule listed there. So it's worth taking a look to see how those dollars are going to flow throughout the life of your loan. And there's free calculators online, right? So so this is easy to look up as well. But I, I, I just think it's not intuitive the way it works. Just having people understand the mechanics, I think, is, is critical. Absolutely. And the other component that's important to that, that maybe we should have even addressed up front, is the interest rate. 
So you can't understand what's being paid where if you don't know the interest rate you're paying. That's how much it's going to cost you to have that loan. So the lower the interest rate, the better for you. The higher the interest rate, the more expensive it's going to be for you. I don't even think that as part of a high school curriculum, going into something like a floating rate versus, you know, like an adjustable rate versus fixed rate product. I mean, maybe you talk about something like that. But I think at the very least, if you can get people to understand an amortization schedule and to be thinking about interest rates and what is the cost of carrying a piece of debt, that you're going to make great headway, right? So we're not trying to create an exhaustive list here of, of all the things that could or should be taught ultimately, but really just a baseline. Right. And those are things that I feel like most people encounter when they're getting ready to sign their loan. So you haven't thought about this until you see the car you want, you say you're going to buy it, and then they slide the paperwork in front of you and say, all right, this is how it's going to work. And you're kind of committed at that point because you've bought the car in your head, even though you haven't signed the papers. Yeah, you've already emotionally bought it. And as, as my grandfather who sold cars for, uh, for Pontiac for many years used to say, many people only care about one thing. What are my monthlies? That, that was what everybody worries about when they're looking at their loan. They're not thinking about the structure of it, the term of it. I mean, ideally, when you're buying a car, I would walk onto the lot already having gone to like a credit union and having a pre-approval letter so that I could just write a check. Now, a lot of the dealerships want to do the financing for you, but at that point, you're going in armed with what you need to know and making sure that you're getting a competitive deal and offer. It's funny you say that because the last couple times I've gone to purchase a vehicle, they won't even talk about interest rates. It won't come up unless you explicitly ask them. They will just tell you the monthly payment and hope to avoid that conversation altogether because I think the average person is focusing on what are the monthlies and wouldn't even care about the cost of the loan. And like they extend the term as far out as they can just to make that monthly payment lower because they feel like that's how people are going to make their decision. And it's wild because then you can't compare against, you know, going rates and other options. I mean, I'm seeing 72 month car loans like a lot now. I mean, that's a long time to be paying for a car, six full years to be paying for a car. And these cars keep getting more expensive. So you're, you're seeing stuff like that a lot. Uh, the last time I went for a car, they were offering 84-month loans. Oh, my gosh. If you need an 84-month loan, what you actually need is a cheaper car. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just going to say it. Unless you're in particularly unique circumstances, 84 months is the world telling you that's too much car for you. 100% agree. All right. We're getting off track here. We, we've turned it into a rant. All right. The next one that I think would be part of our curriculum is understanding a pay stub. There's so much information. Even as financial planners, we love the ability to look at somebody's pay stub because we can get so much out of it. We can figure out what your withholding is set at. We can understand your general tax burden. We can understand what is being taken out for things like your retirement plan contributions, what's being taken out for your health care costs. That gives us all sorts of data. But I think when most people hear for their first job that you're going to make whatever rate, 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, whatever you're going to earn as your pay, I think people calibrate to that. They go, okay, great. If I make 10 bucks an hour and I work 10 hours a week, I'm going to make $100. No, you're not, right? Just understanding how much gets deducted on those pay stubs and where it's going and why I think is so critical. And it's probably not something you've ever been exposed to until you get that first job. So I think walking people through that would be really helpful. 
I had a friend who called me after he got his first job. He he was astounded by how much his net was. Like it was much lower than he expected. And he ran through everything with me over the phone. It's like, I'm not a high income earner. My tax rate should be very close to zero. Like, why do I have so little money left over at the end of my week? Who in the hell is this FICA guy? Right. Why am I paying him so much? 7.65%. Well, that's coming out. That People think of federal taxes, I think, first and foremost. If you're astute, you're going on to the next level and thinking about your state taxes if you have them. But regardless, you're paying FICA taxes. 7.65% is the employee's portion of that tax, and that's coming out of your paycheck. Right. And when people think about their federal income tax rate, I don't even think they think about that, right? You think about what your marginal percentage is. And we talk about that a lot on this show is what's the marginal percentage? Because we're trying to calculate what somebody's tax burden is as we're thinking about it. But that FICA comes out really first and foremost, right? So um, understanding a pay stub, what goes into it, what's coming out of it, unfortunately. I think that's really helpful information for somebody as they're thinking about or approaching their first job so that they can correctly budget after the fact. If you think that you're going to be making 100 bucks for 10 hours of work, you may not be setting your budget up to even accommodate that, right? You can instantly get yourself into an overspending situation if your mentality is anchored to the wrong number. Right. Ties right back into item number one on our financial education list of budgeting and saving. Dan, what's number six? What's the sixth item on our curriculum? All right. This is my favorite one because if you've ever heard me talk about my introduction to the finance world, it's this story where I learned about how the stock market works. And that is, what is investing? What is a stock? I'm not sure that's taught in most schools. And I think it's critical because the more you understand the earlier, the more likely you are to leverage these tools. I think introducing someone to what the stock market is and what stocks are will make someone more likely to invest money early on and benefit from the saving that we talk about in number one, from the compounding we talk about in number two, potentially avoid harmful loans. And I, it just sets you up so nicely for the future. I continually hear people talk about the stock market as if it's a gamble. Like to, to this day, people that are way more advanced than high school kids in, in age and, and where they are in their careers and their li- lives. I think it's so critical that we teach that it's not gambling. If it's gambling at all, it's gambling like being a casino owner is gambling. When you're a casino owner, you've got the game stacked for you, which is great. Somebody could still sit down at a blackjack table at the MGM and go on a ripping run. They could, they could win lots of the casino's money in the short term. That's the same for being a stock market investor. If you're a stock market investor, your initial move could be very, very ugly and painful. But long term, the odds are stacked in your favor. You're playing an unfair game as a long term investor. There's never been a crash that the market did not recover from. Now, again, we're only looking at history, but we're looking at a pretty long one with many, many examples of the resiliency of public markets. So I I really, that's what I would teach is that resiliency, the difference between being a trader and an investor and why it's not gambling. When you're buying stocks, you're buying a portion of a business. And if we're talking about broad market indexes, you're basically betting on business in general. 
it would take a lot for business in general to fail. And I'm pretty sure that our investment would be the least of our worries at that point. I mean, it's a it's a dark joke, but I've always talked about it. If the S&P 500 goes to zero, you shouldn't be worried about your diversification. Like you need to pr- start protecting your home. I mean, if that, if that's really the situation we're in, it doesn't matter what your portfolio looks like at that point. You're you're in survival gear mode. Right. So the the earlier you can teach people and introduce people to the stock market, probably their only exposure is in the context of the Great Depression, which maybe not the example you want as people are thinking about investing in the stock market. But again, I think people will utilize that tool more, introduce them to to what an S&P 500 is. There are a lot of grown adults who don't know what the indexes are. They might even be investors and don't know the broad market indexes. So the earlier we can introduce people to those things, the better. They can make better decisions earlier on in their lives. So that's it. We hope that you are all, as our listeners, getting an A in this course, hopefully without too much studying. But those six concepts, that's what, that's what we would have as part of our financial literacy course. Budgeting basics and savings, compound interest, how does your credit score work, how are loans structured, including the amortization tables, how to understand your pay stub, and how the stock market works. That's our core fundamentals that we think everybody should come out of high school with. Do you see something we're missing? Is there something you would add to our curriculum that we skipped over? If so, send us an email at checkyourbalances@outlook.com. Was there a valuable lesson that you were taught in school that you think you'd like to share with us? We would love to know it as well. Feel welcome to email us. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a great review. We love hearing from you. And we look forward to catching you next week on Check Your Balances. 